Well, good morning, church. It's great to be together here today. There's lots of smiling faces, and we look forward to the day when there's a, this whole room is filled up. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty well zoomed out. Um, before I get started this morning, I, I do want to make uh, a little statement here on behalf of the elders. I just really want to thank Alex for all of his hard work. There's a lot of technology that has been wired. There's TVs all over the place. There's electronics and wires going everywhere. And we couldn't do some of the things that we're able to do if it weren't for Alex. So Alex, thank you very much. Um, as all of us are aware, we live at a time where there's a lot of chaos going on. You can't help but turn on the TV or get online and, and you see what appears to be just chaos everywhere. And it causes a lot of strain, it causes a lot of stress, there's a lot of peer pressure, there's a lot of questions about how do I respond to this, what do I do? And tonight, or this morning I should say, I really want to talk to a lot of the young people. Um, because this is probably really difficult for you. You've never had to deal with anything like this. You've never experienced anything like this. And so this is all new. And you're being bombarded with social media on what to think and how to say. And what really should somebody who believes in Christ, what should our stand be? And so I'd like to take an opportunity and basically uh, tell you that I understand your situation, that I can relate to it. I'm 60 years old, and probably a lot of you who are younger than me don't quite know the world that I grew up in. I was a child of the 60s, and the 60s were a very tumultuous time, to say the least. Just to give you some idea, in 1962, there was a thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was the closest the world ever came to an all-out nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia. I'm sure there were a lot of parents who didn't sleep very easy that night. In 1963, President Kennedy was shot. In 1965, there were civil rights marches with Martin Luther King. In 1965 to 1973, we had the Vietnam War. And I remember as a little kid, my dad would watch the news every night, and they'd do the strangest thing. They'd give what were called body counts. They quite literally told you how many died during the war every night. And I remember as a little kid just thinking, the world is, must be a crazy place. I don't understand how my dad could watch this. I don't understand how the world could be so chaotic. But that was the world I was growing up in. In April of 1968, Martin Luther King was shot and killed. Not soon afterward, Bobby Kennedy was killed as well in 1968. The United States got involved in the Vietnam War between 1965 and 1973. And in 1969, to a televised audience, they did what was called a draft lottery. They proceeded to draw out one day for every day of the year, and if your number was called, you basically were first up to basically be drafted, join the army, and go see Vietnam, and potentially lose your life. To say that didn't cause a lot of strain for a lot of people in college and for families um, would be difficult at best. Um, in the 1970s, we saw shootings at Kent State College. And in 1979 to 1981, some, uh, there were a number of Americans who were held hostage by the Iranians. I remember I was in high school at the time, and I thought for sure they were going to reinstate the draft. They reinstated selective service, and I had to register at the post office, but I thought I was going to see the Middle East. And all of that was before I turned 21. So I can understand a little bit about what you're going through here. So now you may be thinking, well, what does that really matter to me? Well, the reason I relate that to you is because if you kind of don't understand chaos, you're never going to understand First Peter. 
You're never going to understand the world that Peter grew up in. He lived in, in very harrowing times. He lived in very chaotic times. Peter was probably about 25 years old when he began to follow the Lord. And I think Peter was kind of an idealist. I think Peter really wanted to change the world. How do I know that? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 40 and 41, we read, One of the two who heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Now, it wasn't that the Messiah found Andrew and Peter. They found him. Now, if they found him, what does that imply? That implies they were looking for him. So in Israel at the time, the whole idea about a Messiah was somebody who would be a, basically a conquering king who would throw off oppression and hardship, who would restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel. And that's what these young men were looking for. They were young, idealistic. They had two friends who were a little bit younger. Their names were James and John. And you want to talk about a couple of zealots? There was a particular time in, that Luke records. He said when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, that's Jesus, returned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you were of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You see, the initial reaction of these young men when faced with chaos and wanting to change the world was the first thing is we're going to change all these people. And those who won't change with us, we're going to burn them down. We're going to call down fire. And once they see that, they'll all repent and they'll change. They thought that the way that you changed the world was you got other people to change. They lived at a time of religious oppression. I mean, you think peer pressure is tough now? Can you imagine if you don't comply, you could be stoned? That's pretty hard. In terms of political oppression, there were two different kings. There was Herod, right, who was a foreign king, and they also had the Romans over them. They hated that oppression and wanted very much to overthrow that. That's why they idealized the Christ and assumed that he would be this political savior, that he would come and relinquish all the political bonds that held them down, that oppressed them. In terms of racism, you probably couldn't get any lower in the minds of most of the Israelites to being a Samaritan. The Samaritans were half Jews and half Gentiles. They were despised because they weren't pure. They weren't like all the rest of the Jews. They had compromised their beliefs. They had compromised their national identity. And so they were looked down upon as dogs. And that's why you hear stories that Jesus will recall about the Good Samaritan. He's basically trying to tell them, I understand how you view people who are outcasts. But there is good in everyone, and there is good to be had by the right kind of people, just given the opportunity. In terms of sexism, women were oppressed, and in terms of slavery, you could be put in prison basically for not paying your debts. Miss your credit card bill payment this month? Guess what? Debtor's prison. And it became a very harsh life, and it was very difficult to get out because once you were put in prison, there was no way for you to make a living. If your friends and your family didn't come to your rescue, you had no recourse. Like I said, Peter was an idealist. He really wanted a better world, I believe. He just didn't know how to achieve it. He was young and had great dreams. He wanted to see a lot of change, and he wanted to see good things happen for both him, his family, and his nation, Israel. Peter was a fisherman, and you have to understand what a fisherman is like. A fisherman is the salt of the earth, kind of a rough and tumble guy. I mean, it wasn't unpredictable that Peter would be the one who would cuss at a little girl who accused him of being a, a disciple of Jesus when he was standing at a fire outside when Jesus was being tried. Peter was rough and tumble. He'd probably be a great guy to have in a fight. 
If you remember, he's the guy who grabbed a sword and cut off Malchus's ear. He was always ready for action. But God had a, better, had a different choice for Peter. He had a, a greater plan for him. He ultimately would give Peter the desires of his heart. Peter just didn't understand how that could be accomplished and how God really worked. The book of 1 Peter was likely written somewhere around 64 AD. At the time, Peter would have probably been about as old as I am now. When he was a disciple, it was during his formative years. He was very much impressed by the world and the things that were going on at the time. And yet I think as you read the book of Peter, you begin to see an older man who looks back upon his life and understand what truth really is, what following God really looks like, and how following God can ultimately change your life. And so we come to today's passage. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. It says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you're anything like me, when you first read this passage, it seems relatively unremarkable. And yet Peter says to sum up, in other words, everything that he told us before in the first several chapters of Peter, he relates now to just a couple verses. So I'm going to recount what Peter basically has told us, because we're going to sum up again what Peter has said. And Peter was motivated by, I think, four things that dramatically affected his life. And you can see traces of this in 1 Peter as he begins to speak. The first thing Peter wants us to know is that there is a God. In chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, Peter is giving all the credit for the plan that transpired, ultimately for the death of his son and for our salvation via the cross to God the Father. It was always his intent to do that, and Peter fully understood that. Peter also understood that God had a plan for his life. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, God's plan is for you to live forever. Sometimes we put a little bit too much stock in this life. We fear death. A lot of us are scared because of the coronavirus and what it might do to our health and our life. And yet, really, when you reflect upon it, life is short. Life is passing. But the thing that's really important, it was, lasts forever. And the thing that lasts forever is eternal life. Peter also tells his hearers that they have been given a tremendous advantage. In chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, he says, seeking to know that person or time, the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things in which you have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels look, uh, long to look. In other words, he's saying you have been given a great advantage. Have you ever thought about that? In other words, you've been born on this side of the cross. 
Everybody who was on the other side of the cross had no idea what God was doing. They had no idea of how to overcome this world. They had no idea of the power of the cross or the resurrection that was to come. So all of us who live on this side of the cross have been given a tremendous advantage. Peter even says this is something so tremendous that even the angels wanted to see this, but they couldn't. Guess who were the first persons to come to understand this? the church of Jesus Christ. That's a tremendous thing to understand and something none of us should take for granted. The other thing Peter wants us to understand is that God is good. Now sometimes we may question God's goodness and if I were to ask you today, is God good? What would your response be? For some of us, we may hem and haw a little bit. We may really not know what, but we might just mouth the words that God is good. Sometimes it's a matter of perspective. So let me ch share a little story with you all. It's about a teacher, and she asked the, her students, she said, what I want you to do is I want you to get together and I want you to figure out what are the present seven wonders of the world. There were some disagreements among the class, but pretty soon most of them came in with their votes, and here were the top seven choices. The Great Pyramids in Egypt, the Taj Mahal, the Grand Canyon, the Panama Canal, the Empire State Building, St. Peter's Basilica, and China's Great Wall. Pretty good list. Probably the same thing I would come up with. But one little girl in the class, she was having a very hard time with this. And so the teacher came to her and, and began to basically console her a little bit and, and ask her why she was having such a hard time. And she says, well, there are so many to choose from. And she said, well, if you'll just tell me what your list is, perhaps I can help you. So the little girl said, I think the seven wonders of the world are to see, to hear, to touch, to taste, to feel, to laugh, and to love. When you see the world through the eyes of that little girl, your perspective changes, doesn't it? You see that God put us in a world and gave us some great senses to experience life to the full. The things that we put great credit on are the things that we build and the achievements of our hands. But tell me, what would life be out like without any of these qualities? It would be completely different, and I'm not sure life would be worth living. These are all the attributes that give life meaning. And who created all of those? Our Heavenly Father. When you think about God, how do you envision Him? Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, he said, which he will bring about in the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul understood that when you come into the presence of God, you come into unapproachable light. Now, if you can envision that in your mind's eye, it isn't that the light, the room that God resides in, if he resides in a room, is filled with brilliant light. No, he's the one who fills the room with brilliant light. And Paul refers to it as unapproachable light. Now, what do you think that means? That means the goodness of God is so overwhelming, it becomes difficult to even approach his presence. You see, God is very different from us. He's not like us. When we think of darkness, we think of shadows. We think of, of evil being in the darkness. But in God, there is no evil. It's all light. He's not ashamed of anything that he does. He doesn't hide from anything. He has no reason to uh, not be able to explain everything that he does because of who he is. 
He's very different than, than we are. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. In other words, God's saying, I think completely different than you do. I've seen so many times when people will begin to question God, and they don't even stop to think for a moment, wait a minute, is God really different than me, or is he just somebody just like me except more powerful? I think what you'll find is if you really begin to pursue the Lord, you're going to find out that he is very unique. There is nobody like him in the whole wide world. In fact, Peter understood this, and in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, I always thought as a little kid what that meant is you folded your hands and said your prayers. That's not at all what Peter's talking about. He's, holy means to be unique, to be different. In other words, God's saying, I am not like any of you. What are all of us like? Now, we're all a little bit unique. We have certain tastes and, and things that we all do a little bit differently. But God is very, very unique. We lie. God never lies. Right? We have deceit in our hearts and in our minds. God never has that. He is so unique. He is so different that he's not like the world. He's not like anything that any of us experience. And so we need to draw close to him. And that's what Peter was really, I think, trying to get to when he said, be holy for I am holy. Peter understood what that meant because Peter was like all of his friends. He was rough and tumble. He cussed. He carried on. He was ready for a fight at a moment's notice. He wanted to see things differently, and Peter was going to make sure that it happened at his own hands. But that wasn't God's plan. Why? Because God is very different from all of us. One of the things that you have to understand in Peter's transformation is that Peter came before the cross. Peter wanted to change the world, and I'll tell you, if, if you're one of those people who want to change the world, the first thing you have to do is change yourself. Too many times what we think the answer to all of our problems is, if I can get all of those people out there to change, I can make the world a better place. That's never the case. You want to change the world, change yourself. Peter records in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, We were redeemed by the blood of the cross. In other words, you were purchased by his death. He didn't have to die, but he chose to lay down his life on our behalf. So why did Jesus die on the cross? The answer is simple. It's the only way that you could have been saved. Remember Jesus prayed, Father, if there's another way, right? No other way was given to Jesus, which means there was only way, only one way, and he was willing to pay that price. I'm glad that he did because the price was tremendous that he had to pay for that. When you think about it, what is it that you really want out of life? Peter understood that. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, the one who desires life to love and to see good days. What is it that you want? You want everybody to get along? You want to see life? You want to have life to the full? You want to be able to love your friends and your family and those around you? And see good days. You don't want to see evil. You don't want to see chaos. You want to see peace. I think that's what most of us think. That's why all the Miss America pageants, what do they say? They want to see world peace. Right? That's a good thing. We don't want conflict. We don't like conflict. And yet we live in a world that what? Is filled with conflict. <clears throat> you know, our life is short. And sometimes we may ask, why am I alive? What's my purpose for being here? Well, when you look on it, I'm 60 years old now. 
In my mind, I think I'm kind of still more like a 16-year-old. My body's a little bit older. There's less hair, and a lot of it is gray. But I think what I've come to understand is the reason that life is the way that it is, and it goes very slow when you're young, and as you get older, it goes a whole lot faster. It's really a means so that God can teach you who you really are. It's a proving ground. When faced with conflict or trials or tribulations, how are you going to respond? If you were never given this life, you'd say, oh no, I would never do that. I would never act this way. But guess what? You're going to be faced with trials. You're going to be faced with hard times. You're going to be faced with hardships. And the question is, how will I respond? Peter says in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 24, he says, life is short. All flesh is like grass. It withers. It falls off. In other words, Peter understood this. He was an old man now by the time he was writing this letter, and he understood how fleeting life really is. It doesn't seem that way when you're in your teens or your 20s, but when you get to be my age, it goes by pretty fast. And I bet you if you ask Judy or Polly, they'd tell you the older you get, the faster it goes. Throughout the history of the world, there have been great men, there have been great movements, there have been people who wanted to change the world, and they made their best attempt at trying to do it. When you think back into ancient history, the pharaohs built the great pyramids. So great that even a little girl today, or little kids today in school remember the great pyramids. But guess what? The pharaohs, they're all dead. The Bible records one of the greatest kings who ever lived. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. Guess what? He's dead. Then came Darius the Great, the king of Persia. He's dead. Then Alexander the Great, who conquered most of the known world. He's dead. Then the great philosopher Plato comes along. He had great ideas that influenced the world. But guess what? He's dead. All the Caesars, they're dead. Genghis Khan, dead. Napoleon, dead. Mao Zedong, dead. Stalin, dead. Hitler, dead. See anything in common with all these guys? They're all dead. There's only one leader who is alive. His name is Jesus Christ. Because of what he did, he was raised from the dead. And I understand when Peter begins to address some of these things, when you read 1 Peter, a lot of times it's hard. A lot of times it's difficult. Why? Because Peter talks about authority. And authority is hard to us. We don't understand it. We don't see it. The trouble is a lot of times when we see authority, it's because it's corrupted authority. God established authority for our benefit. He put rulers in place to watch over us, to protect us, to keep us safe. But what happens when those rulers become corrupted? Bad things happen. When we talk about submission, I know a lot of us probably cringed. We don't like submission. We hate being told that we have to submit to somebody, and everything in our, every, every part of our being fights against it. You can tell, we just don't like it. But guess what? Submission is probably one of the greatest powers that God has ever bestowed upon humanity. You're probably thinking, how can I say that? Well, think about the time when Jesus was alive. All the powers of the world, the religious authorities, the political authorities, everything was poised against him. He had great power. The Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels. That's enough angels to kill every man, woman, and child on the planet. But he had power under control. He was the meekest of men. And because of that, that he had the power to, to avert his own death but chose not to and submitted to a horrific death, a torturous death, 
where he was mocked and scorned and ridiculed even though he was the one who made us all. Yet he endured that for our sake. And because of that, Peter records in verse, chapter 1, verse 21, that it was God who raised him from the dead. He was willing to submit. He was willing to go along. He was willing to do God's will, not his own will. You see, there's something important most people don't understand about submission. In order to really understand submission, you have to understand that you're not just acquiescing your position to somebody, but it's exercising meekness. It's power under authority. In other words, when you feel like you're being treated unharshly, or harshly, when you feel like you're being treated unjustly, and you endure that, guess what? You set up an appeal against the authority who is oppressing you, and now your appeal is directly made to God. If you fight on your own behalf, God's going to let you fight. He's going to let you try to work it out on your own. But why would you do that? Why wouldn't you exercise the greatest power, the greatest authority in all the world? Submit, just like God tells you, knowing that he has told you that, and he will come to your defense. He came to Jesus' defense, and as a result, he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what should I do? Well, let's get back to our verse. Peter says, be harmonious, be sympathetic, be brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. In other words, treat one another with respect and kindness. He says in verse 9, he says not evil or insult for insult. In other words, when you're cursed, bless. Don't return evil for evil. Bless others. Say good and want the best for your fellow man. Then Peter does something really remarkable, and I didn't quite understand it when I was first assigned these verses. He quotes from chapter 34 of Psalm, uh, or Psalms 34. Peter records it in chapters uh, 3, verse 1 to uh, 10 and 11. And in that Psalm, Peter recounts, he says, The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's like, Peter, why would you quote that verse? You're just giving some platitude to some common psalm. And then I looked more closely. And if you look closely, what is Peter saying? He's saying, watch what you say. And I thought, oh, I get it now. What was Peter's greatest regret in life? It's the things that came out of his mouth. When Jesus Christ was being tried as a criminal, Right as an apostate, he denied his Lord and spoke words of deceit and lied. I think this verse haunted Peter, and that's why he's quoting it to us today. He's saying when it's the hardest to do what God wants, that's what you need to do. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to seek God, and you need to obey him. Why? Because if you do, his ears are going to hear your prayer. In other words, his authority will be invoked on your behalf. You don't want to submit, but if you do submit, guess what? God notices it. And he will come to the aid of those who call upon him. And then he closes and says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If when you stand up for what is right, and it's because other people are, are committing evil, believe me, God is watching you and he is on your side. That whole process transformed a young man 
who basically wanted to change the whole world. From a guy who wouldn't pass on a fight, to a guy now who only blessed. To a guy who is harmonious and peaceful, who is willing to submit so that others might be saved. Why should we do all of this? Peter says so that you would inherit eternal life. That you would live forever. Evidently, the diff most difficult tasks in all the world should be met with the greatest of benefits, the greatest of rewards. And eternal life is the greatest reward you can ever imagine. If you desire life and you want to see good days, the eyes of the Lord are upon you. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his face will be against those who do evil. So let me ask you, in the face of chaos, what kind of person will you be? Will you be someone who takes matters into their own hands? Or will you submit to the authority of the Lord and trust him? He's still on the throne and he's still in charge. He's coming back one day to judge this world. And everything that we do in this life, we get one chance. And it's a short life. Make the most of it. Do what's right. Stand up for what's right. Seek peace and bless others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his example. In everything, in the midst of chaos, it gives us a light to see. It gives us hope. It gives us a way to overcome evil. When darkness seems the heaviest, yet we know through a power that seems so weak that you can achieve greatness. Help us not to rely upon ourselves, but help us to rely upon you and your son, Jesus Christ. For you're the only one who possesses the power to overcome death and to bring eternal life. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his great sacrifice. Thank you for your love for us. In his name we pray. Amen.